Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah chapter 46. Everybody should think about New Year's resolutions. And many preachers start their first sermon of the year off speaking about spiritual New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I am going to remind you of something that I think will be encouraging, which is that most people who deal in the arena of motivating others, whether they be business leaders, sales managers, coaches, teachers, they will tell you that the nature of effective goals is that you set them in an achievable manner. In other words, don't make a New Year's resolution that is unreachable. In fact, don't make one that's 12 months out. Set a short-term one. I'm going to do this this month. Or by Easter, I'm going to do here. I'll be here. I'll weigh this, praise God. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to read this, and I'm going to be more committed to that. And I thought, well, how appropriate is that in that I'd like to begin this year with a finish? Would you like to finish the book of Jeremiah? I would like to finish the book of Jeremiah. In fact, this morning, if you'll allow me, I want to use the first verse of Jeremiah 46 as my outline. Take your Bible and find Jeremiah chapter 46, and I'm going to read just verse 1 for just a moment. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. If you'll allow me, that sentence really provides two parts to this message. Part one is something related indirectly to the book of Jeremiah, but super important to the life of our church and to what I hope to be your own spiritual growth. The first part of that verse says, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. There are two numbers that were on my heart this morning. One of those numbers is 511. I began the book of Jeremiah with you 511 days ago, August of 2020. Little could we know all that we would see as a people and a nation, but we began in August of 2020, verse by verse through the book of Jeremiah. But as is always the case, the most significant number for me in the first Sunday of every year is the year that it marks. 18 years ago this week, I stood and began preaching God's Word as your pastor. And this morning as I walked across the parking lot, I always pray my way across the parking lot. As I walked across, I couldn't help but think about the faithfulness of God over those 18 years. I can point to you times where I feel like I've been faithful and other times where I feel like I've struggled or lost my way. But of the things that come to my mind, the common denominator is the faithfulness of God over the last 18 years. It is the highest honor of my life to stand before you and to proclaim the Word of God. And with your grace and allowance of me, I'm going to keep doing it until the Lord allows me to transition to another season of my ministry where I will do interims and say what I want to. But before then... I would love to spend the rest of my career right here preaching God's Word. And that's where I get to that verse. The Word says, and the Word of the Lord came. 
We've gained so many new folks over the last few years, I wondered if today might not be a good day to take just a moment and answer a question, a question that is supremely important to your own spiritual life, though you may struggle to make the connection. Just a word about the Word. See, we believe the Bible, and the Bible says of itself that it nourishes the soul. In fact, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word of God nourishes our soul. I think about the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, I have hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think about how every word of God is breathed and inspired and is good for teaching and admonishing, for rebuking and training, that the man or the woman of God may be built up for every work of righteousness. In fact, Paul, when he commissioned young Timothy, says, Timothy, no matter what, in season and out of season, preach the word. Why have we spent 511 days in the book of Jeremiah? Why have we preached it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and often word for word? I think you should know the answer to that. I think it matters because I don't believe this is your last church. Some of you may live your entire life on this earth and never join another church. But others of you may be called to plant churches. You may be called to be a part of a campus that we begin. God may move you to another place. Many of you are young, and our church, our 11 o'clock service will be filled with more young people, and they won't live their life here, or God may lead them to another church. And it is a travesty to see believers not know what to look for in the ministry of a local church. Now, there are a thousand things that local churches can and should do, and our church does many, many things. But the central conviction of God in his word is that the local church be a place where the word of God is opened and proclaimed into people's lives. In fact, though I tend to be pretty casual and I try my best not to talk too academically, because I'm not an academic, I'm just a preacher. In my doctoral work, you have to wrestle with a theological definition of preaching. Here's mine. This is what preaching is. Preaching occurs when the preacher devotes himself to communicating the central meaning or idea of a biblical passage as the central message of the sermon. How does he do this? By exploring, explaining, and applying a biblical passage with the intent of redemptive life change, both in his own life and the lives of his audience for the glory of God. This is my definition of preaching, and it is what we are going to do for the next 52 weeks right here. And the reason is, it is what you and I need. We need the Word of God into our lives. Any polished orator, any professional communicator can take the Bible, rip popcorn verses out of context, and say what he or she wants to say. This is what gets passed off often as preaching. Yet the preacher, the pastor who is committed to the biblical convictions of God's Word, will milk the text verse by verse, so as to make sure he feeds the whole body the whole word. Why why do we do this? Let, Let me give you just a quick few reasons. This is why we do this. One, 
When we preach the passages like the book of Jeremiah for 511 days, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it honors the nature of biblical revelation. There's a reason why God inspired chapter 1 before he inspired chapter 2. There's a reason why he told the story in Genesis and Exodus before he gave Paul the word in Philippi. The nature of revelation is that God, like you and I, communicates sequentially. None of you open your email and scroll to the bottom and read it backwards. You don't open a book and choose random pages to read. You read it from front to back, cover to cover. And this is why taking a book of the Bible and preaching it is the way we can honor the nature of revelation. It also protects against taking a verse out of context and not applying it correctly. Most false teaching is not people who don't own a Bible. They own a Bible. They may know their Bible, but they take parts of the Bible out of context to form their own social agenda, to form their own spiritual agenda, to form their own, in many times, selfish agenda. It also forces the preacher to address a wider range of subjects, topics, and truths. You think it's been fun to walk through the book of Jeremiah now for 511 days? There's nothing like a Monday morning cup of coffee. I get sit down at my desk and go, man, what another week of God's wrath and judgment against sinners. Here we go. Yet throughout this journey, what we have seen is this amazing picture of the holiness of God and his redemption and working. And when we walk through books like the book of Jeremiah, we become more thankful for Jesus and what he has done for us. It also increases the authority of the message. I am not, never have been, and never will be qualified to tell you from my own personal experience how you should live your life. You have experiences and strengths that I don't have. You have insight and wisdom and experiences I could never have. You and I both are humans. We both fail. We both struggle. We both can be very fragile. So my authority standing on this stage is not because I somehow have an anointing of God over my life and that my flesh and that my mind has wisdom that yours does not. That is not biblical and that often leads to personality worship. We don't need that. The authority in the pastor's life is the same authority in the parishioner's life. The authority in the man on the stage's life is the same authority in the man or the woman in the seat. It is the Word of God. I want to preach in such a way so that if you disagree with what I say this year, you'll have to take that up with the Lord because I'm just saying what He says. And I want you to know and to love and sometimes to experience His blessing and His rebuke. It also allows for consistent planning. I'd never sit in my desk and go, well, what am I going to talk about next week? How arrogant would it be of me to think I know what you need to hear? I don't know what you need to hear. I could never know all the individual struggles in this room, all of the nuance, all of the difficulty. I just communicate what God said. And therein lies the sixth reason. It keeps the preacher and the church from becoming unbalanced in what is emphasized and taught. Now listen, there are some churches that have lost their way because they preach headlines and not the line. I will not allow a lost world to drive the agenda of this pulpit. We're not the first nation to deal with difficulty. 
We're not the first generation to deal with a pandemic. We're not the first people to see our culture decay from the inside out. But we are the only people who have been given the Word of God. But isn't it fascinating that even in this ancient book of Jeremiah, over 2021, every time we opened the pages, it was like Jeremiah was speaking right to the headlines, speaking right into our lives. It creates a greater depth of biblical knowledge in the preacher and the church. I don't want you to grow up arrogant. I don't want you to get puffed up in yourself. But do you realize that you know more about the book of Jeremiah than most people with a seminary degree? Because for the last year and a half, you have sat and swam in this text with me. It instills in the church a love for God's Word. It helps maintain the pastor and the church's spiritual vitality and moral purity. Can I just tell you that on my 18th year, I'm not even close to being burned out. I've never run out of stuff to say. I couldn't be more excited. Every Sunday morning, I want to run through paper with cheerleaders on every side. I couldn't be more excited to get here, and I'll tell you why. Guys burn out when they try to be the Holy Spirit. I can't fix you, and I don't have to figure out your life. I just say what God has said, and the Word does the work. The Word does the work. Let me give you just a few more. I know you didn't know you were coming to this, but it provides a never-ending supply of sermon topics. When we finish Jeremiah, we go into 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend weeks in 1 Corinthians. You would not believe what's in 1 Corinthians. My goodness, those people in Corinth had some struggles. And you're going to see that Paul, to the church in Corinth, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, speaks right into our lives. It also forces the pastor and the church to address real needs versus felt needs. Let me tell you how spineless preaching works. Spineless preaching worries about filling the auditorium, and so it says, I need to figure out where people are in their needs, and I need to meet those needs. Here's the problem with that. Human needs aren't always accurate. Do you know I've never had one of my children tell me they needed to go to the doctor for a shot? Not one of them have ever walked up to me and said, Dad, you got any broccoli? Not one time. They never come to me and hand me money. Dad, will you put this in savings for me for my future? Never happens. They need candy. They never need the pediatrician. They need to sleep late. They never need to get in the car and get to school on time. See, our felt needs are often not our real needs. And when you build a generation of churches where all the pastor does is try to meet everybody's felt need, you end up giving people cake when they need bread. You don't nourish their spiritual life. It also invites the fullest power of the Holy Spirit into the preaching event. And my last one, which is related, I hope, to a few of you. I believe when you preach the Scriptures verse by verse, you produce preachers. And you know that there are only two things I want to do for the rest of my life. I'd love to be your pastor if you'll allow me, and I want to produce the next generation of biblical preachers. That's what I want to do, and that's a word about the word. Now, the second part of the verse tells us about our subject. Look what the Bible says. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, concerning the nations. 
I don't know if you've ever visited the island or the prison called Alcatraz. It sits in the San Francisco Bay. It was nicknamed the inescapable prison because in addition to fence and brick and mortar and bar, if you may notice, it's on an island. So if a prisoner were to be able to navigate his way out of his cell, over or through or under a wall, beyond the fence and the spotlight and the detection of the guards, if he made it that far, he still had a long way to swim. You think you can swim a lot further than you can. Right now, go jump in a swimming pool. I did so yesterday. Try to swim three laps with your Christmas holiday diet right here. Try your best. I always am amazed at those triathletes, not for the amount of miles they run or bike, but the amount of distance they swim. Nothing about me was designed to swim. Once I was dared by a young cousin to swim about 300 yards. He jumped in skinny and buoyant and skidded across that water like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. I couldn't let him one-up me. I jumped in. I was supposed to go across the lake and back. By the time I got halfway, the only thing sticking out of the water was my lips sucking air. I created a stroke. I had to crawl on the bank of the opposite part of the lake and beg him to come over on the wave runner and pick me up and crown him the winner of the dare. Swimming is hard. Swimming in the frigid waters of the San Francisco Bay at night is difficult. So this was the inescapable prison until 1962 when three guys tried it. Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin. Great looking guys, don't you think? Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be these guys. They were bank robbers. And they fashioned a masterful plan to escape Alcatraz. A movie was made about it starring Clint Eastwood. They took paper mache and designed heads that matched theirs. They stuffed their bunks with pillows and placed the fake head on the pillow so when the guard would walk by, he thought they were in their cell. They chiseled through the block in their cell crawled down through a corridor, made their way out, and they had fashioned together a raft made of raincoats that was later discovered. Now, interestingly, they were never found. All of the evidence pointed to the reality that they probably drowned trying to swim across the San Francisco Bay. But to this day, they still remain on the wanted list because their bodies were never recovered. Soon after that, Alcatraz was closed. Almost everything in this world, given enough time and ingenuity, can be escaped from. But when it comes to God's judgment and God's love, chapter 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, and 51 would communicate to you and me that it, it is inescapable. It's inescapable. You see, the last part of the book of Jeremiah has little to do with Judah and everything to do with the surrounding nations. In fact, Judah wasn't alone in antiquity. The nations surrounding Judah would not escape the judgment of God. When you read the passage, you see that in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Why would that subheading be there? Because up to this point, the 45 chapters preceding were almost entirely about the nation of Judah. 
the nation of the kingdom of God. But Jeremiah, in his prophetic office, did what almost every other prophet would do. In fact, only Hosea, only Hosea is in the Bible not prophesying against other nations. Ezekiel, Isaiah, other Old Testament prophets prophesied not only about Judah, but about the surrounding nations. Now, you have to ask a question. Pastor, why would we do this? This entire book really is about Jerusalem's rebellion against God and God's punishment of Jerusalem through the fall of Jerusalem. That happened in 586 B.C. under King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. We have established this fact over and over again. Why would we take time to study other nations? What benefit does it have for you and me to see what peoples of antiquity went through because of their rebellion against God? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. Let me give you four quick reasons. One, God's moral laws and moral authority are universal. It reminds us when we study the plight of other nations that God is not singularly focused on Judah. Number two, God does not tolerate or is indifferent to sin anywhere at any time. We may see dark places in the world. We may see rebellious places in the world. We may see places of extreme political instability and wonder, is God ignoring those people? Does God care about those people? Nations and difficult surroundings of the third world, undeveloped peoples, people who seem to always deal in economic despair and political unrest. Does God not care for those nations? This series will prove he does. God is over the fate of all nations and none are out of his control. President Biden is having a phone call this week with President Putin of Russia, primarily because Vladimir Putin is accumulating forces at the Ukrainian border, an area in that part of the world that creates a lot of tension because of Russia's interest in controlling Ukraine. And this is seen on a global scale. I have no idea what those two men will talk about, but I do know this. God is as much in control of that situation as he is your life today. You can rest on it. And these chapters prove that. Finally, nations, cultures, and individuals, listen, almost always fall from within. What we're going to find as we walk through these other nations is that it wasn't outside enemies that destroyed them. It was their own sin. Just a word of personal application. The Bible says you have an enemy. In fact, he's called the enemy, Satan. And the Bible says that every day a Christian should put on the armor of God and recognize that Satan will not leave you alone, that he's going to oppose you. That's true. You may have human enemies. There may come times in your life where someone in wickedness and sin is opposing you, is trying to hurt you, is trying to mistreat you. No doubt if you live long enough, you will experience the enemy, that is Satan, and you will experience human enemies. But I want you to know, by testimony of God's word and by my own experience, often my greatest enemy is me. My my greatest struggle is me. And what you'll find in these nations is that while they may fall to a foreign enemy, their decay happen from within. That's what I fear for our nation. I don't spend a lot of time fearing for our nation, the enemies of the world, though they are real. I see the decay from within 
the breakdown of the family, the moral decay even within the church. And I recognize that makes us weak. So this is why we study these nations. And the first one up is Egypt. Look what the Bible says in verse 2. About Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, there's some interesting history here, and I just want to give you a quick blip of it. What we find is that in 609 B.C., Pharaoh Necho is on his way to help the Assyrians. Now, just remember it this way. The Assyrians had the power, and they were fading. The Babylonians were the up-and-coming new kid on the block. The Egyptians' dynasties had waned for many centuries, but still liked to be politically involved. If you think about a triangle of sorts with Jerusalem in the middle, you have Babylon here, Egypt here, Assyrians to the north. The Assyrians are fading. The Egyptians are still wanting to have their hand involved in the Middle East, and the Babylonians are coming. In fact, they marched north to come in the north side of Judah. We've seen that over and over. And so when the Assyrians are struggling and the Babylonians are winning, the Egyptians say, we're going to help Assyria. But Josiah, the last good king of Judah, recognized that was not God's will, went out to intercept the Egyptians, pushed them back, and he's killed in battle. When Josiah dies, which we saw early in the book of Jeremiah, the kings that followed him did not lead well, and that led to great sin and wickedness. In 605, the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians at Carchemish. Now, I I know some of you like to see maps. They help you, if you will. If you look at the map on the screen, the bottom left-hand corner is Egypt. Still sits there today, obviously. The bottom right-hand corner is Babylonia, where Babylon is, where modern-day Iraq or Iraq is. The arrow points to the city of Jerusalem. You can see how both the Babylonians, bottom right, and the Egyptians, bottom left, were vying for power in the Middle East because it's a land bridge between Africa and Europe and Asia. And they meet at a city that I have put a red circle around called Carchemish. Here in 605, the Egyptians get their tail handed to them. They get whipped by the Babylonians. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. And then what happens, back to the dates, Jerusalem falls in 586, and 16 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, because he can march right through Jerusalem, goes into Egypt and has many victories there. That's what this chapter is about. And we begin to see the pride of Egypt unfold in verse 3. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount a horseman. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears, put on your armor. Jeremiah is prophetically making fun of their pride. Get ready, boys. It's time for battle. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warrior are beat, warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. 
in the north by the river Euphrates. They have stumbled and fallen. Now, now, Egypt used to pride itself in saying, our armies rise like the Nile River rises at floodplain. Look what verse 6 says. The swift cannot flee away. The warrior escape. In the north river of Euphrates, they have stumbled and falling. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise. I will cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, and men of Lud, skilled, and handle the bow. That the day, that day is the day of the Lord, the God of hosts, of day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated, be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead, verse 11, and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. Two simple truths. In pride and idolatry. The judgment of God is inescapable. You know what got Egypt? The same thing that got Judah. And the same thing that will get you. And the same thing that will get me. Pride and idolatry. What does pride look like? Pride is when we bow to the altar of self. Idolatry is when we bow to the altar of anything that takes the place of God in our life. Some people run for fear, worshiping the idol of health and immunity. Other people run for wealth and power, worshiping the idol of gain and success. I don't know what your propensity is, what idols you may struggle with, but Egypt struggled with pride. And there's a note of irony here. You see it in verse 17 and verse 18. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Noisy one who lets the hour go by. That's the Bible's way of saying he talks a lot, but he cannot stop time. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The Egyptians did what the Greeks would later do and the Romans would do. Whomever was the Pharaoh, or in the Romans' case, the emperor, he was not just one you swore your allegiance to. You were to worship him. The pharaohs were treated as gods. We see the relics of their burial sites today in the pyramids. They are celebrated as deities. And yet the God of heaven says, well, go to them. They're awful noisy. They say a lot, but the day does not stop turning. The king of kings and the Lord of lords is the one we worship. This is why we see it in verse 18. As I live, declares the king, whose name is of the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Look at verse 20. A beautiful heifer is Egypt. Guys, don't try that on a date. The Egyptians often carried the bull or the horns of a bull into battle. One of their deities was associated with a bull. When you think about bovine, cattle, bulls are the one you tend to watch out for. 
Now, a heifer can be awful mean if you get between her and her calf. Perhaps a calf has just been born or you're tagging calves. This is the time of the year when cattlemen typically calve so that the calf and the heifer and the cow, who's no longer a heifer once she has a calf, can have those spring grasses. This is why you calve in the winter months. So in the spring, when the grasses come up, the cow and the calf have the most nutrition in the pasture. Taught you a little something today. The heifer, though, is the female. The heifer is the nurturer. You don't carry a symbol of udder into battle. You carry horns into battle. And yet Jeremiah says, the heifer of Egypt has been taken down by what? Another heifer? A bull? Nope. Just an old mangy fly. Look what the Bible says. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. America is a fattened calf. We have too much. We live in surplus. We get upset over the smallest things. We become overweight with envy and jealousy. This is where Egypt was. And an aggressive, a needy, a thirsty enemy took them on. And a fly took down a heifer. There's one more thing I want to show you. Look what happens in verse 25. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt. Those are references not only to Pharaoh, but to the God of Pharaoh and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh. Here's why. Last phrase, verse 25, may be the most important verse of the chapter. And those who trust in him. What angers God is for him to be God and to bestow upon us access to himself, to give us his word, and then for us to trust the false gods of the world. I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question, but it's a great question to ask this year. In this moment, in this conversation, in this decision, Am I acting as though I trust the Lord? We all place a certain amount of trust in people. That's what marriage is built on. We can place a certain amount of trust in medicine. We place a certain amount of trust in the known facts of the world. We would call that science. We can place a certain amount of trust in leaders and leadership. We can place a certain amount of trust in men and women in authority, especially those we should submit to. There is a certain level of trust that we must exhibit, but for the believer... For the believer, the peace, the emotional stability does not come because I surround myself with great people and great things to trust. No, 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 no. We trust the Lord, and we live like it. So we're not prone to fear or worry. When anxiousness wells up, we know what to do with it. We take it to the Lord. We trust Him. And you may say, but, but I'm, I'm fearful, Pastor. What, what if a loved one gets sick? What if our nation continues to divide? What if, heaven forbid, someone I love loses their life? If they know Jesus, we trust the Lord. We live as though we trust the Lord. A a and we trust him because he has removed the greatest enemy, the sting of death. So, so to be absent in this world is to be present with the Lord. 
To be filled with pain in this world is to trust the Lord, but to be free from the pain of this world is to be with the Lord. So we trust the Lord. Mom and dad, your children need to see you process every decision this year trusting the Lord. And when we trust the Lord, we're reminded of what this chapter reminds us of at the end. In repentance and faith, the love of God is inescapable. God even has a word for Egypt here. Look what he says, and I'll close. He says in verse 26, I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he does. Afterwards, Egypt shall be inhabited, as in the days of old, declares the Lord. We don't know why fully, but God says, I'm going to let Egypt be punished, but I'm going to let Egypt be resettled. I'll tell you one reason. Guess where Mary and Joseph fled with baby Jesus when King Herod tried to kill him? Egypt. Always remember, your king was a refugee one time. He was a man without a country in need of shelter. This is why we love refugees. This is why we care for people. This is why it matters that those who need a place to build their life are given grace and kindness by believers. We believe in law. We believe in order. We believe in justice. We recognize that there has to be security measures in place, but we love the vulnerable. This is what the people of God are to do, and God loved Egypt. And no sooner has he said this about Egypt, he mentions the people of God. Where was Jeremiah taken after Jerusalem fell against his will? Egypt. So there are Jews living in Egypt watching Egypt fall. Jerusalem just fell. We ran to Egypt. Now Nebuchadnezzar's marching into Egypt. What shall we do? We shall trust the Lord. Why? Look at verse 12 of chapter 27. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for beholding, I will save you from far away. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to know the love of the God of Jerusalem and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servants, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all nations. You seen any Hittites running around? Anybody met a Philistine? You ever put that down on a census? What are you? I'm a Canaanite. All those nations are gone, but they're still Jews today. Israel still exists today. Why? Because God says, I'll make a full end to other nations. But look what he says in verse 28. But you are of you. I will not make a full end. Hey, 2021 is over, but you're not. God may discipline you. He may call you to struggle, but he will not make a full end to his people. When we turn to him in faith and repentance, do you know what we'll never escape? The love of God. Don't take my word for it. You know what Paul says? Paul said these words, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're like me, there's some stuff in 2021 you did really well. You're proud of yourself. You should be. 
And then there's some stuff you messed up royally. There may be some relationships you built. And there's some you caused to struggle. Dad, there may have been times when you provided good, faithful leadership for your family. And there are other times where your impatience or your temper got the best of you and you dropped the ball. Mom, there may be times where you felt like you created a place of nurturing and, and love and you cared for the people around you with tenderness. And there may be other times where you felt like no matter how many hours are in the day, there's not enough for you to do everything that's expected of you. Some of you may have made great business decisions and were rewarded financially. Others of you may be in more debt today than you were a year ago because you made a mistake financially. All of you, including your pastor, had times of holiness and righteousness and times where I struggled in my own spirit and in my own flesh with sin. When I look back on 2021, I see ups and downs. I see tears and joy. I see sickness and health. I see funerals and births. I see it all. But he didn't make a full end to it. By his grace, he has brought us to today. And by his grace, he will take us to tomorrow. And one last thing. You know, all those nations, they're going to be in heaven. When John sees the throne in Revelation 7, he says, After I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation. That means every nation, past, present, and future. That means... Canaanites and Ukrainians. That means Canadians and Haitians. That means Ugandans and Americans. That means every nation among which God will redeem and call to himself those who by faith will repent of their sin and trust in Christ. So let me ask you this as we close. 2022, you and I got a choice. Pride and idols, me and the stuff I want, or repentance and faith. Lord, today I want to trust you. Because even though I have deserved many full ends, stop, periods, you're the God of commas. You're the God who keeps writing your redemptive story in our life. Because in Christ, his love is inescapable.